Hello? There we go. All right. You have no idea how disappointed my technological son is in me right now. I've come to the point in my life when I can no longer read the print in my Bible. It is too small. And so I had to type the scripture out in larger font. Don't laugh at me, Gary, okay? <laughs> you will be there. You will be there one day. And you know, when you, when you hit the word processor, all kinds of fonts, different names show up, you know? And, and I just kept scrolling until I found the one that said old man. And that's what I typed uh, on my paper this morning. Amos chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing many, many bodies flung everywhere and silence. Um, in the first part of this chapter, the Lord is talking to Amos, and, and I think it's noteworthy how relaxed and how casual their conversation is you know he asked amos who, who if we've been listening to the pastor for several weeks um you know amos has has made it clear that he's not a prophet and that his dad was not a prophet um he was an outdoorsman and 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 he was summoned by god uh to be on this particular mission he was a little out of his comfort zone and god speaks to him real real clearly and succinctly and in a way that it's easy for Amos to understand. And, and I appreciate that this morning because that's how God deals with us. God could, um, and he's certainly entitled to uh, really communicate in ways that we as finite human beings could never understand and could never truly comprehend but his love for us transcends that and he's able to communicate with each of us individually, personally, intimately, in such a way that there are no barriers in his communication to us. And, and I think that's one thing that I take for granted a lot. Just what links God has gone to to be able to have a conversation with someone like me. God, God does that with Amos, and it's real, real simple, and I think it's real profound at the same time. Um, God showed me a basket of ripe fruit, and he said, what do you see, Amos? And Amos says, a basket of ripe fruit. Um, I think Amos was to the point in this journey with God that he also understood that God is not impressed by we as human beings trying to say something in a way that we think will make a difference to God. God's not impressed by anything that we can conjure up or anything that we could do to try to manipulate a situation or make it sound better than it is or, or make us sound more spiritual and pious than we are. That's not what God 
is looking for this morning. God is looking for sincerity. God is looking for uh, a plain spokenness from uh, the heart of his people. I think that's why he chose Amos for this task. I think that's why he didn't choose uh, a, quote, um, prophet for this particular task. Uh, God, God always has been impressed with the reality of his people. One of the things the Lord does in these first three verses when he talks about ripe fruit uh, and the season when fruit got ripe in, in that particular day and age was the latter part of the summertime, the end of July and the first part of August. And God uses uh, a play on words with Amos to really ring a bell with him. The words uh, end and summer or end and ripe, meaning an ending for the way Israel was behaving, correlating with a ripening fruit um, in the Hebrew language, from what I understand, had a, either a, a rhyme or a connection or some type of identity with each other. Um, if you're familiar with songwriting, in, in songwriting terminology, it's called a hook. Okay? If you go to Nashville and you want to make a living writing songs, the first thing music publishers will tell you is that you got to be able to deliver a hook. Okay? It's a term to denote a play on words that's catchy, that makes somebody remember what it is that you're trying to say. Country music is famous for hooks in songwriting. Uh, when Tim McGraw says, I'm uh, living in Mexico, or I'm down here in Mexico living on refried dreams, that's a hook, you know? When George Strait says, I've got oceanfront property in Arizona, that's a hook. When Gar says, I have friends in low places, that's the truth. I mean, that's a hook, okay? <laughs> um, that's a hook, okay? Um, you familiar with the song, 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses? The chorus is nothing but one hook after another. All these numerical references, okay? 18 wheels and a dozen roses, 10 more miles on his four-day run, a few more songs from the all-night radio. He'll spend the rest of his life with the one that he loves. Yes, I can go on all day, okay? Um, I know a lot of useless information. Those are hooks, okay? A play on words that helps somebody remember the significance that the songwriter is trying to deliver. There are others, maybe not quite as famous, didn't get quite as much airtime as some of those that we've talked about. Um, uh, you ever heard the song, I wouldn't take her to a dog fight, even if she had a chance to win? Um, my, uh, my wife ran off with my best friend and I sure do miss him. Um, my favorite one is, if my nose were running money, I'd blow it all on you. You know, those are hooks, okay? Those are hooks. God does what he does intentionally so that Amos, with his non-theological background, 
not being a prophet, not coming from a line of prophets, understands completely that the Lord is saying, I'm tired of this. These people have exhausted my patience to the point that I, in my holiness, in my righteousness, have to do something about it. I have to do something about it. The time has come, Amos, when I can no longer be patient with the way that Israel is behaving. And so he begins to explain to Amos exactly what some of those things are. Look at your Bibles and, and look at verse 4. Scripture says, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell again, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy with a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings of the wheat. They had gotten to the point where not only had they forsaken their sincerity and the, their relationship with God, but they're now being dishonest and insincere with one another. They are, and, and, and Scripture points it out clearly, they're cheating each other in the marketplace. They're dealing with each other dishonestly, and this has become a norm. This has become a way of life for them. And here's, I think, the implication for us this morning. When our sin, our our deliberate, or uh, whether it be intentional, unintentional, whatever the case might be, but when our lives drift away from God, there will inevitably be pain on other people. You've heard people all your life say, I'm not hurting anybody but myself. Well, according to what Amos tells us this morning, that's just simply not true. When we get away from the statutes, when we get away from the lifestyle that God wants us to leave, the end result is always going to be that someone else is going to get hurt in the process. It's a natural progression that we can count on this morning. And that's exactly what was happening with Israel. The very things, if you'll remember, that um, some of the, the major prophets in the earlier part of the Old Testament um, were... Uh, so a bit out of shape about other countries doing to them, the Israelites are now practicing those things themselves. Being dishonest, uh, taking care of only uh, their own interest, and treating each other in a way um, that no one would want to be treated. But how does that start? How does that start? Well, Amos says this, that the people say, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? There was a period of time in the Hebrew custom, in the Jewish custom, uh, at the beginning of the month where they did not practice um, selling and buying and things like that in the marketplace. It was a time, supposed to be a time of respite, supposed to be a time uh, that they set aside for dedication to God. 
And these people are saying, man, I'll be glad when that's over. Man, I'll be glad when that's, when that's finished and we can go back to making money. Same concept we used to have in the state of Texas. You remember the blue laws on Sunday? Where you couldn't buy certain things and certain places were not open and, and uh, you just couldn't, couldn't get a lot done in certain situations on Sunday. The impatience of our society did away with that. We don't have that situation anymore, do we? Very rarely do you see someone who intentionally uh, uh, closes their business or does not participate in business on Sunday any longer. Impatience of the people led to that. Amos says, they say, when will the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? You see, these were people who still practiced at its very superficial level the customs prescribed by Moses in the law given to the Hebrews. They knew they, had, they, knew they were supposed to do that. They knew it just doesn't look good to go to the market on the Sabbath. This is, you know, something that we're not supposed to do, so we're not going to do it. We're, we're, we're going to keep that provision, we're going to keep that measure of the law, and we're going to keep the Sabbath reserved for what it's supposed to be reserved for. The only problem with that was that they were doing it mechanically and not doing it spiritually. They were playing religion with no relationship. The Sabbath had become a burden for these folks. The Sabbath had become an inconvenience for these folks. They didn't, they didn't abstain from certain activities on the Sabbath day because they wanted to have time to commune with God. They wanted to be able to listen to God. They wanted to be able to interact with Him. No, they did it because it was a rule. You know the old saying that rules without relationship lead to rebellion. And that's exactly the point they were at. Their hearts were so far removed from what God had asked them to do that they were in a rebellious state to the point that they were like ripe fruit that was no longer fit to eat, no longer edible. And God said, what do you do with ripe fruit? What do you do with fruit that's turned rotten? You get rid of it. It's not salvageable anymore. And if you keep it, it's going to contaminate everything else. And if you keep rotten, decaying materials around you, it's going to contaminate the things that once were healthy in your life. And God said, I can't permit that. My holiness can't abide with that. I have to get rid of it, Amos. And I'm about to do it. The problem was... That being dishonest in the marketplace, not dealing fairly with your friends and neighbors, even just going through the motions of religious customs, but really not caring anything about it, those were all simply symptoms of their sin. Those were the result of their sin. 
wasn't the sin itself. Sin itself really could come down to one thing. Israel's biggest problem was they were way more concerned about Israel than they were about God. Israel's biggest problem, if we have to label it, we have to categorize it, is that they were completely self-centered. Their priority when they got up in the morning had, had devolved to the point where their only concern was, what's in this for me today? How does this change my life today? How can I benefit from this activity or this situation today? And if it doesn't pertain to me, the truth is really, I don't care about it. I've, I've been in trouble for that attitude before. Cricket would, would be talking to me uh, at what I consider to be inopportune times. when the game is on, okay? And she would, she would say something, and I would say in all sincerity, what's this got to do with the next play? Don't do that, okay? It's not a good move. But that's the attitude that the Israelites had, okay? God, if what you're doing doesn't really affect me today and it doesn't advance my goals and my agenda and where I want to be and what I want to do, well then God, you just need to do that on your own and I'll call you if I need something. It sounds really blunt and really harsh, but that's exactly where they had gotten to. Tell me this morning the major difference between that attitude and the one that we have in the United States of America today. I'm afraid there's not very much difference at all. And just like the nation of Israel, God has secured us and protected us and blessed us in ways that people in other parts of the world cannot even fathom. And the truth is, most of us get up every morning and go, what's in it for me? And God said, I will not put up with that anymore. That's a rotting, decaying attitude that's got to be done away with or it will contaminate everything else. When we are far more concerned about ourselves than we are about the holy, perfect will of Almighty God, then we have committed the very sin that God is, is so eloquently talking to Amos about in our scripture this morning. Look at the result, if you would. Amos uh, 8, verse 11. Skip down to verse 11. The Lord is speaking, and he says, These days are coming. These days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God tells Amos not only 
Is there going to be death because of the sin that this nation continues to perpetuate? But there's going to be a slow, lingering, painful death. There's going to be, there's going to be a struggle. There's going to be agony that these people will endure. They're literally going to starve to death over a long period of time. They're going to starve for the word, for the connection, for the communion with Almighty God. He says, you, you, you say, Israel, by your actions that you don't really want to do that. You don't really want to connect with me. You have church on the Sabbath because your daddy did and your granddad did, and it's the right thing to do, and it looks bad in town if you don't do it, but that's not really what you want. You say under your breath, I'll be glad when church is over so we can go do what we want to do. That's exactly what they were saying. I'll be glad when, when God is finished so I can get on with my business. Well, I'll tell you what. If that's really what you want, I'm about to let you have it. I'm about to let you see what it's like not to be able to connect with God. And he describes, a, I think it's just a horrible existence. He said, a famine of hearing of the words of God. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. You ever been so hungry? And your blood sugar drops, and you need to eat, and yet you just can't bring yourself to do it. Cricket calls it circling the city. I've been guilty of this several times. I'll wait too long to eat, and my blood sugar will plummet, and it'll be time to go eat, and we'll get in the car if we're, you know, traveling, if we're off someplace. And like, I just keep driving. Just like the scripture says, wandering in all directions, knowing what I need, but yet not having the faculties, not having um, the mental ability at that point because of how deprived I am for nourishment to be able to stop and, and get something to eat and take care of this situation. It's, it's just being constantly lost. Just, just being on a... On a, on a uh, a track that never ends. What a horrible, horrible feeling that is. Horrible existence that is. God says, this is how you're going to live your life. This is how it's going to be for you when you neglect the word of the Lord so long that it no longer is a priority in your life. You just thought you were on your own. I'm really going to let you get there. I'm really going to let you be there. I don't know that there's anything worse than to be completely cut off from the provision and the protection of the Lord. I don't know that there's anything that could happen to us this morning that would truly be worse than to know that God would no longer deal with us as an as a individual, as a church, as a nation. last thing we really, really want, even though we act that way, 
is for God to leave us alone. You know, I think about, I think about Jesus and the suffering that he went through. Uh, the, the physical pain and the physical agony that he went through and uh, everything that I, I've ever read or heard about Roman crucifixion and just how horrible it was, you know, how, how painful it was. Uh, and then on top of that, before he even gets there, they, of course, they've, they've been through the beatings and the, you know, the torture and all that that Jesus endured. It was horrible. But I really believe the worst part of that entire ordeal was when his dad turned his back on him. I don't think anything hurt Jesus as badly as when he assumed my sin and became black and scarred in the sight of God the Father because of the things I would do wrong. And God in his holiness just could no longer look at him. I think that was the breaking point for Jesus. Even worse than all the beatings and the nails driven in his, in his flesh. The, the public embarrassment and, and all of those kinds of things. I believe the very worst point in his life is when Jesus said, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? I believe, I, I could be wrong, somebody check me on this, but I believe when Jesus was on the cross and, and he, he uttered those words, that's the only time in the life of Jesus where he referred to God as God and not his Father. Any place else that I can remember in the New Testament when, when Jesus is praying or when Jesus is talking about God, he refers to him as father because there is a relationship there. There is a connection. It's natural for him to refer to him as his father. That's who he was. But when God turned his back on Christ as he hung on the cross, for that moment in time, that relationship was suspended. And it didn't exist for Jesus. And he did not have a father. And he cried out to a God. He cried out to God. It's the only time that Jesus doesn't call God Father. Because that was the worst time in his life. Amos knew from what God was saying that things were about to get really, really bad for the Israelites. Because even though these words were written after Amos lived, Amos grew up in a society and he grew up in a faith where sin meant death. You remember the New Testament, okay? Paul says, okay, the wages of sin is death. No, no question about it, okay? Something will die when sin is committed. God's holiness will not accept anything else. Amos was well aware of that. He may not have been a professional prophet, but he understood that once a year, somebody was going into the Holy of Holies, going to take a sacrificial animal with them, and somebody was going to die. They hoped it was the animal itself, 
They hoped it was good enough, but if you lived very long back then, you probably were around one of those times when the priest didn't make it back. And they have to drag him out because God's righteousness literally kills him in the presence of the Lord. Amos knew that sin meant death. He got that. And he knew what was coming. And this morning, it still means the exact same thing. Sin always, always, always results in death. We cannot get around that. We have to make a decision, just like they did in the Old Testament times, in the sacrificial times, We've got to make a decision. Who is it that's going to die? Because somebody's going to. Something will die as a result of sin. Our choice this morning is to be like the Israelites and let that slow, agonizing death come to us. Or we can claim the one death that satisfied the wrath of God. We can either die and, and starve to death for the word of God this morning, or we can fall on our knees and claim the grace, the provision, the protection the reunification, if that's what we need, the reestablishment of our relationship, whatever it is that we are void of this morning, we have access to that because of one particular death, and it's the one that occurred on Calvary. But we need to remember this morning that just like in Amos' day, something's going to die. It doesn't have to be us. By the grace of Almighty God, it does not have to be us. We don't have to wander around lost and hungry if we don't want to. We can claim the blood that was shed from the only perfect sacrifice. We can apply it to our situation however self-centered we may be, however narcissistic we may be, however out of tune and out of touch we may feel with God, we can grab a hold of the one death that really counted and say, I want to use that, Lord. Please accept that. And he will. Because like Paul Harvey said, there's, there's the rest of the story. In the second part of that verse it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The gift of God is eternal life, not temporary, not momentary, not for a little while, not to get me over this obstacle or this bad spot that I'm going through, but for all eternity I can have the confidence, the assurance, the joy that I have life. Because of the death of the Lamb of God. That's, that's, what, that's our choice this morning. That's our choice. To claim the death that's already been given to us. 
or to know that we're about to have to go through that situation ourselves. Scripture says that God would have it that none would perish, but that all would come to redemption, that we would all have eternal life. Jesus also said, I've come that your life might be abundant, that your life might be full, that your life might be better than what you and your human ability can even comprehend. That's what I want for you. That's what I'm dying for you. That's why I'm dying for you. I'm not dying for you just to simply let you, let you to escape the fires of hell. I want you to have an abundant life. I want you to have a fulfilling life. I want you to know what life and joy is all about on a daily basis. I work too hard for you not to have it. So that's our choice this morning. I'm going to ask Shane to come and lead us in a hymn of invitation and commitment. I'm going to ask you to stand and pray with me this morning. Father, we're grateful that even though that just like your children Israel, we your children today, we, we have to acknowledge, Father, we have to admit that we're deserving to be starved to death for a personal relationship with you. We're deserving, Father, to be lost and wandering and aimless in our lives. God, that should be our, uh, our sentence today. But it's not because of the blood of Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, I just pray that here in the next couple of minutes, Father, that as the Holy Spirit works, that you would help us today. If we're, if we're here this morning, we can identify with the people of Israel. And if we were just blatantly honest and said, man, I've just drifted just gotten so far off track that God we'd reach out and we'd claim the hand of Christ Lord and we'd get back in step with you if we're, if we're here this morning Lord and the truth is uh, there may be somebody here that's never really experienced that it needs to come to the fullness of salvation in Jesus Lord let the Holy Spirit work in that individual's life whatever you want to do today God that's what's important help us rid ourselves of our own agendas and our own uh, thoughts and our own control. We pray together in Jesus' name.
down before Him, for He 